welcome back to There Will Be Movies, our podcast covering 25 movies of any given decade. This is our third volume, and this is our third episode. We're covering the movies of the 90s. We're still in 1991, and today we are covering John Singleton's Boys in the Hood. I'm joined, as always, by my intrepid retro-naught going through movies that still are coming out before I was born by Matthew Waters. How are you? <laughs> I'm good. I, f- I have a strong suspicion we're never going to sound more white than we are right now. But, uh, yeah, boys on the hood. <laughs> yeah, but besides that, yeah, all good. Loving being in the 90s. Um, still depressed that you hadn't been born yet. But we'll get there eventually. We will. We're, 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 how, how, how many episodes until we get to a movie where I'm born for? Only two. In two more episodes, we'll be at a movie where I am born. Fine. Good. Great. We should maybe look up what the number one movie was when you were born. <laughs> As a celebration. Yeah, yeah. When we get there, though, maybe. Um, yeah, Boys in the Hood. It's, it's another super iconic one. Uh, why? <laughs> I feel you're about to ask me what my relationship with it is, and I, I, is it I, another one yeah. that I feel I had to watch? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, exactly. Is this one? I remember my story with this movie exactly, which was I was in the middle of watching The Wire. So this is, I'm 15 years old, I think, and I'm watching The Wire and whatever channel it is that was airing The Wire in the UK, I think it was FX was doing like a, a black cinema thing. Mm. And they were like, watch one of the kind of, not, not a formative text on The Wire, but like a formative piece of black cinema in our like cinema season as we're airing the wire and like i was like okay cool i'm loving the wire let's sit and watch this movie Mm. and so obviously this movie is a lot more melodramatic and i don't want to say less realistic but it's definitely more heightened than the wire is for the most part yes there is quite a uh (laughs) quite a melodramatic movie it's so tricky because i think this is kind of a repeating theme and it may just happen through basically the whole decade where like if you haven't seen it yet and you try and watch it for the first time you've you've seen it basically <laughs> you you don't know you've seen it but you have and that was kind of me like I didn't watch it until I was like early 20s I don't think um and I realized I was like oh these are all these these family guy jokes and then like all these different references and like oh this is where this is being quoted from in this rap song I like and... so so had you seen <laughs> Had you seen Don't Be a Menace before you saw this movie? Or was Don't Be a Menace... <laughs> I think I had, yeah. <laughs> sorry, sorry, to give it its full title. Don't Be a Menace in South Central while drinking your juice in the hood. <laughs> Again, we're very white. <laughs> uh, yeah, I think I had, actually. <laughs> so yeah, that is, would also do it for you. <laughs> yeah, because we, we are, as we've said repeatedly, like three episodes into like these super iconic movies that like you can trace their DNA through pop culture, and I think Boys in the Hood has a a smaller footprint or a more localised footprint than other things, and a big reason for that is because obviously in the late 80s, early 90s, there was this big rush of kind of like big black filmmakers with um, with Spike Lee and, and John Singleton kind of like pushing for these movies that become iconic, become huge hits, and they start greenlighting lots and lots of movies until eventually the Wayne brothers realize or the Wayne's family sorry realize mm-hmm. that like oh this is a this is a genre and so they parody it like five years after this movie comes out like there is a very short 
half-life between this movie existing and then there already being a parody for mm. it. And so I think you look at a lot of those filmmakers and a lot of them watch that movie and they get scared off from doing black issue movies in the same way that they were. And a lot of them move into more action fare, like you like with John Singleton's career obviously moving on to still casting black leads in a lot of his movies. But after Rosewood, he's kind of moved on to Shaft and Four Brothers and Too Fast and Furious. Ah, <laughs> uh, yeah, you did watch. <laughs> you did watch Four Brothers before you watched this, didn't you? Uh, uh, I mean, I'd, I'd seen this recently, but yeah, I did watch Four Brothers recently. I've recently uh, watched every single John Singleton movie, so okay. I have his entire career rattling around in my head and how weird it is that his final movie, sadly, before he passed away, is like Abduction starring Taylor Lautner. God. Oh, God, yeah. Where he's like sliding down the thing. Oh, God. Yeah, I mean, obviously you have like the huge black exploitation movement much earlier, but yeah, as you said, I mean, I feel... I mean, I... I, for me, it's Spike Lee, but this is certainly another one where it's like, hey, white people, did you know? <laughs> kind of thing. <laughs> Nowadays, like, this is all very well-trodden ground. Like, people are constantly talking about gentrification and institutionalised racism and stuff like that. But, like, I won't say it's th- this was, like, the first movie to bring any of that up, but I feel it brought a lot of attention to everyday life for a large sector of America um, and for that reason you know it it got historically protected in like I don't know just over a decade or just under a decade which is quite fast for that to happen in whatever institute enshrines these movies in as, as culturally significant yeah I mean to me <laughs> this is gonna sound so harsh it feels like an exceptionally long, very special episode, you know? <laughs> I, think, I think that is totally fair. Like, It's very obvious that this does feel like a debut movie uh-huh. in a lot of ways. Yeah. And, and it, was it like other... his, was it his like film school pitch or project or something? Yeah, yeah, pretty much. It's like he comes out of film school and like this is, I don't know if it's the script that he wrote or what, it's definitely like the movie they nudged him into making once he came out of film school. Yeah. And it's obviously that he is very talented but there's like some weird things like the fact that this movie was shot in chronological order. Oof. <laughs> so like so so you know normally when you shoot a movie you shoot it in such a way where it's like right we're in this location and we're going to be in this location for 5 days mm-hmm. so we'll shoot all the scenes here and then we'll move on and you have to like reach inside and find the emotional place you're going to be at later on. Whereas in this movie like Singleton has done interviews where he came out and said I can see myself becoming a better director <laughs> as I as I go through the movie. Like the movie becomes more interesting, more didactic, or however you want to say it as it goes through. And and you do feel it. You do feel like you're watching this person grow as a director as you go through it. And it is preachy. And I don't think anything <laughs> um, emblem like is as emblematic in that sense as the scene where they literally have a talk about gentrification. Yeah. Um, Come with me, boys. We're going to Compton. <laughs> We're going to inspire the youth and lecture an old man. <laughs> but I do think it is a movie that it feels like it's got the passion of youth. I don't think yeah. it is not as good as Do the Right Thing, which I think, no. like, like Spike Lee has a real fire under his ass in that movie, and like he is making <laughs> just in that movie, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> just in that movie. But yeah. he's making like one of those all-time great movies, uh, and and this is is a notch below that. But I do think I can see the passion in John Singleton. This yeah. is probably a better cast movie 
that do the right thing. It does feel authentically uh, youthful, as you said. Like, I actually don't know the ages the actors were at the time. I'm sure much older than they were playing, but still, it feels... It doesn't feel like a 40-year-old man making a movie about 20-year-olds or teenagers or whatever, which so often does happen. Um, it, it does feel authentic. But then, like, you know, you do also get this... I don't know if I would call it skittish or wishy-washy. It kind of just... And then, and then, and then a little bit. Um, and that's the stuff I, I don't enjoy as much, the kind of slice of life... You know, you just hit this weird montage where it's like, here's here's Trey and Brandy arguing about sex, and here's here's Ricky like playing football, and then oh here's Doughboy just hanging and banging. Like, I I might to me it's like it's a it's a collection of individually great scenes and really iconic moments. Like the the final the finale, like the the, the last sort of twenty minutes. 25 minutes they are like you know that's amazing but kind of the journey to get there I feel at times it lacks a bit of focus and that is maybe because he's a first time director no that's totally fair so should we just do a bit of background context before we get into like the meat of the movie itself so uh, this is John Singleton's debut movie it's released in the United States on July 12th 1991 made for a budget of reportedly 6.5 million dollars it tops out at about 57.5 million dollars this is credited as only being North American box office, I assume, because the rest of the world is racist and probably would not screen <laughs> the movie featuring a majority black cast. I mean, yes, we have also run into the problem of some of the uh, non-US box office data not being as readily available in the early 90s so far, but I would imagine that is also true. Yes. Um, so, Matthew, how yes. did this movie do in its opening weekend? Well, um... Only third in its opening. Uh, it, <laughs> it was having to compete with the second week of Terminator 2 Judgment Day. Uh, the second best Terminator movie, obviously. <laughs> and then just above it, uh, also in its debut week, was 101 Dalmatians. I mean, age rating has a direct correlation on money made, generally. But it did open ahead of Point Break. A million and a half dollars ahead of Point Break. Uh, and then the rest of your top ten. Uh, the Naked Gun, two and a half. Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves. Regarding Henry, City Slickers, Problem Child 2, and The Rocketeer. I miss The Rocketeer. Do you know what was at number 15 still? Silence of the Lambs in its 22nd week. <laughs> um, still trucking along. How much, having made $127 million by this point. <laughs> yes, so just $117 million ahead of Poison the Hood's opening weekend. But you know... Uh, the third's not bad, given it is very demographic-specific and is, I don't I would imagine it had the highest rage rating available at the time um, versus, you know, a mass appeal action movie and then a children's, you know, a Disney movie. Uh, so that's not bad. This is, this is definitely, like, a hard R-rated movie. Like, yeah. there isn't a lot of sex, but there's enough sex. There's obviously a lot of swearing. Yeah, I think it's the, the language and the subject matter and the, you know, frank yeah. discussion of AIDS and drugs and, and all sorts of stuff. I would also imagine even mentioning racism as a thing probably gets you a certain age rating. <laughs> so I've just trekked through all of these old John Singleton movies from the 90s, but, like, mm. were there any 
that you've seen that you would go like i think this is better than boys in the hood obviously this is a me choice hence me hosting it but just mm. just off it like if if you hadn't just gone with me choosing boys in the hood was there any other movie that you would have gone like actually i think this one is a more interesting movie to discuss not more um i do like poetic justice for sure that's <laughs> the only candidate too far too furious sucks and it's like obviously the next decade i've seen that shaft movie and it fucking sucks i remember not one second of four brothers uh i've seen it i do not remember anything uh abduction i have no desire to see um obviously all of that is the is the other decade higher learning is okay but yeah i kind of like poetic justice but i obviously wouldn't pick that over boys in the hood Higher Learning is the only one that I would, like, want to just have a discussion about, because Higher Learning is a wild movie (laughs) in so many different ways. It's like, here's 18 billion ideas about, like, LGBT culture, racism, white supremacy, like, all these different things just in one movie, and then, obviously, the, the entire, like, final section of the movie is... Michael Rappaport shaving his head and becoming a school shooter and murdering Tyra Banks mm-hmm. and it's just I, like again I, I do not think it's a better movie than this but it's definitely a movie that I could probably talk for about 90 minutes on <laughs> just about how weird it is that this movie exists yeah <laughs> um, but no we are here to discuss Boys in the Hood which so let's go through just kind of like the cast so obviously this movie is kind of split between three central performances in the form of Cuba Gunn Jr Morris Chestnut and Ice Cube mm-hmm. who I think all of them are very early on in their careers at this point yes uh, for sure I, Ice Cube must have been in something before this like a, like they can't have to so sh- this is this is Cuba Gunn Jr's third movie uh-huh. This is Ice Cube's first movie. Jesus, okay, yeah. <laughs> and it's and it's Morris Chestnut's first movie as well. Really? That surprises me. Because, you know, I'm not going to come out here and tell you Morris Chestnut is one of the finest actors of our generation or anything. But he's a he's been a really solid hand for, like, a very long time. And he is much better than Ice Cube. But, I mean, to be fair, I would imagine Morris Chestnut set out to be an actor and Ice Cube is just... A musician with many interests. Obviously, he's done a lot of acting since this movie, but he's never really gotten that good. <laughs> like, I think like, he's found a niche in being really angry all the time, but I don't think he's ever been very good. I mean, obviously, like he is multi-talented. Like, obviously, he's he writes Friday and stars in Friday. Sure, sure, but and I don't like his career is fascinating because obviously, like. Are NWA kind of like almost wrapped up at this point, or is this like in the middle of? I think you're hitting the point where he's like openly stepping out and being like, "I am the talent of the group." (laughs) Um, Because I mean, you know, whether it's true or not, I mean, I think it's been verified. You know, he was ghostwriting a lot of of the other members' lyrics and stuff like that. But for a while, they at least pretended it was a legit group effort. And then this is the point where he's starting to. you know, write Friday and step out and be solo and see that scene straight out of Compton where he's sitting there like writing Friday and like laughing his ass off at his own jokes kind of thing and it's like okay dude <laughs> um, and straight out of Compton gave me a negative impression of Ice Cube 
because it's like even though it's his son playing i know but it's like you cast your son to play you and you made sure to like the main takeaway is ice cube is the most talented man in the in the world but I think I think that's a big issue with with all of these biopic type movies is if there are people alive they need to sign off on it and if they're going to sign off on it they're not going to let you show well yeah for what's and all kind of interpretation of it so so Ice Cube is apparently left NWA in 1989 yeah the rest of the group is kind of dissolved by 1991 yeah and the whole is movie the is way... titled after an NWA song so yes fitting that they would cast him <laughs> yes I mean I I don't know how John Singleton knows him but obviously like he is making discoveries he is finding these very youthful actors from the looks of all of them were about 20 when they filmed this so not quite the age that they are in the movie but, but not like... as far as off not as far off as you would expect and and like going back to what I was saying earlier like you know the idea of the like 40 50 year old man making a, a youth culture movie like they would cast like 25 30 year olds and they would not cast ice cube <laughs> feels that feels very intentioned like if we're gonna portray this world why not bring in the guy that like was instrumental in exposing it to a wider audience through music rather than a movie i just <laughs> he just isn't very good <laughs> like he tries his best with his final uh monologue at the end and that, that that's his best moment in it for sure but throughout it's just like you're just Ice Cube, aren't you? <laughs> <laughs> but it is an interesting thing, because obviously it's something that Singleton likes doing, and mm. almost all of his movies feature a musician at least turned actor. Yeah, yeah. Because obviously, like, he is kind of one of the driving forces in Tupac as actor mm-hmm. in, the, in the final years of his life, and a lot of the rumblings and a lot of the casting in, in his movies later on is like, I wrote this role for Tupac, and... Yeah. Instead, I replaced that role with Tyrese, mm-hmm. who is also a musician turned actor. He is. <laughs> who has been in very little other than Past and Furious movies. Um, and the Transformers films. Yeah, I guess he is. Yeah, that's true. Um, Tupac became quite a good actor, I think, by the end. I would have liked to have seen him in a Fast and Furious, but yeah. But that's the thing is like I think I think it is one of those things where he would have been in Too Fast Too Furious, he would have been in Four Brothers, he would have been in Baby Boy, and Baby Boy is probably the most interesting one where like that is the movie that was written for yeah. Tupac and is the one that's kind of like his most kind of analysing what it means to be a black man in in Hollywood not in Hollywood, a, a black man kind of growing up and having to deal with, with fathership uh, or fatherhood and everything like that, which is <laughs> yeah. a very current theme through all of his work is the idea of family and in particular fatherhood i mean well have... yeah i mean he beats you over the head with the there is it is inescapable that the message of this movie is that like the importance of a strong positive role model in the lives of young black men and like trey has one doughboy does not <laughs> doughboy ends up a burnout drug dealer like gangbanger gets executed Trey goes to college, like, (laughs) I mean, I don't want to dismiss that as a point, I do think it is somewhat simplistic, there are many single mothers who do a fine, fine job raising their sons, but, you know, it it is a valid point, and I think, I think by tying it to Furious being so, like, um, you know, speaking on gentrification, and, and particularly the point they want us to kill ourselves, kind of thing, you know, that the, the experience is very much you are likely to grow up without a father because 
this is how it is. This is what your life expectancy is. This is, you know, like, it's explored. You know, we see it in the UK as well, to, to give it something I can vaguely speak about. You know, it, it, it's, it's in the song Ordinary People. Like, there's nothing else to do, so we just drink and smoke and screw. Like, so you get a lot of, you know, there's there's no money, everyone's fucking, and everyone's getting shot, and you end up with, with broken homes and... and young men without fathers and stuff like this and yeah i mean it some of it bothers me some of it i think is is incredibly valid on some level i'm like would he have been better off if he stayed with his mother <laughs> like i know inglewood isn't exactly i mean i actually don't know if inglewood is more dangerous than than crenshaw my instinct is slightly less so but he seemed in a slightly better situation with his mother than he ends up with with furious but I mean, he was still being exposed to, like, a lot of violence, and he was fighting and all of this, but... And his mother needed, I think, some space to, like, finish her education and everything, but... Yeah. I do think it's interesting that the movie... Because, obviously, it doesn't have it as quite simplistically as, like, well, the kid without a father is bad, and the kid with a father is good, or ends up in a a better situation, because, Mm. obviously, there is Ricky living under the same roof as Doughboy, and... Well, Ricky... (laughs) is a father at, like, 17. <laughs> sure, like, he, he has made fuck-ups, but, like, I do think the movie counterpoints it by saying, like, it isn't so much about having a father, it's more about having role models that you look up to and respect and stuff like that, because that's why you have... Ricky is the one who kind of goes around with Trey <laughs> as opposed to Doughboy. So, like, Ricky and Trey are, like, the best They're the good boys, and, yeah, for sure. Yeah. And, like, and that's and the whole Ricky thing, is, is Doughboy one... resents Ricky for being the favourite son and and... and... You know, the golden child. He does try and help him at points, but then he also clearly very much resents him and everything. It's, just, it's like it's very pointedly Ricky is there for the speech about <laughs> gentrification. Like yes. he is there. Furious is very much kind of like a father figure to him too. Mm-hmm. And you get you know the young Furious telling Trey. Don't enlist in the army. There's no place in the army. I went and joined up for Vietnam, and then like one of the last things Ricky does in his life uh, is seem to take great interest in an army recruitment ad. Great big Chekhov's gun in the movie. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I think does he win on the scratch card or is it just like he's he's doing well on it before he dies? I don't know. But I think I think I, I think he's still just like scratching it yeah, out. I think yeah. that would be an extra like because obviously <laughs> the movie kind of does like I think that would be one tragic layer too much because in that final death scene it's like yeah. he's thinking of joining the army, which mm-hmm. is like he's lost his hope. He obviously just got his exam results back, which proved that he passed and was able to go to the college that he wants to to play football. Mm -hmm. To add on a hat on a hat on a hat of him (laughs) having won the lottery as well (laughs) would would completely overpower how powerful (laughs) that kind of sequence is. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And like, you know, that is the prevailing... No matter what you think of, of the first sort of 90 minutes, it's an inarguably phenomenal final sort of couple of scenes um but when, when would you say it kind of starts from like what is your point where you're like this is when the movie kind of starts cooking is it like from when ricky kind of has the interaction at uh, where they go to the, the street racing i don't know i mean like, is... like i said i think it's kind of just a collection of moments up until that sort of laser focused i really would say it's literally just like the day of the shooting and afterwards because even shortly before that you got Furious and Reva having like a 
a discussion that feels I wouldn't say superfluous, but like I don't know it. Given what they were doing with Furious for the first like hour and a bit, for him to just sit there like basically giving her shit for like dumping the kid on him when he asked her to. <laughs> I don't know. I don't. I don't really like that final scene with those two. A very, a very underutilized Angela Bassett in her like third <laughs> scene in the movie. Yeah, I mean she's amazing and like. Larry Fishburne, which fucks me up every time I see that that credit at the end, is, you know, he is magnetic from the word go, which is why I would hesitate to say, like, the movie isn't good until the end, because you have so many great scenes with him. I mean, it, it is kind of this, he's almost a perfect man, you know? <laughs> like, it's like, you know, oh, who could possibly break up with this incredibly charming man? But then he's also got discipline, and he's raising his boy right, and he's so educated, and and I don't know, like he's almost too perfect of a father. Even even though like you know the the textual story is he has only seen him on weekends for much of his life, and like is the implication that he and Reva separated over Vietnam. I don't know. Yeah, I mean it, it's still amazing though, and he is so charismatic, and it is kind of a trip to see him whenever he pops up in these movies earlier in his career where he is this kind of young hand i mean i'm not saying he wasn't handsome as he got older but you know this young handsome force kind of thing who is like so fucking charismatic obviously he is defined by morpheus and he's still charismatic there and he's like eating <laughs> every scene in that movie for dinner but there's, there's just something very different about this like he's got this more like sexual energy about him and like you know they're incredibly frank discussions about sex and you know all all this stuff and the 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 cop the self-hating cop um <laughs> one of cinema's greatest monsters quite frankly um their little standoff with him and like the tray as a child his first real exposure to the police maybe is them not bothering to show up for an hour and then doing fuck all and then that same cop like <laughs> pulls a fucking gun on his face seven years later and all that stuff. So for me, like, you know, I wouldn't even go as far as to say, like, the beginning isn't good either. Like, you know, it, it. I think it goes on a little bit longer than it needs to, the childhood stretch, but there's still so much good stuff with Fishburne especially. And The the first 30 minutes of them being kids, I, I see why they've done it. It's mm. kind of get across this, like, hazy... I don't want to say loss of innocence, but like I think the most yeah. powerful thing you get from the shift ahead really is you get to see the the reaction to the cops. You get a lot of Larry Fishburne, who is, as you say, like great magnetic. I probably would put him up for a supporting actor oh, nomination yeah. for this year. Yeah, uh, where he, like so he's up, he would have been up against Jack Palance for City Slickers, Tom Lee Jones for JFK, Harvey Keitel for Bugsy, Ben Kingsley for Bugsy, Michael Lerner for Button Fink. Like definitely room in that category yeah. to fit in Larry Fishburne. Should probably um, say before I forget, um, John Singleton for this movie becomes the youngest uh, person ever he nominated. Still is. Is he still the youngest yeah. nominee for best director? Still the youngest nominee. Yeah. And he was the first black nominee to, for best director, which is amazing. Which obviously makes it even more tragic when he dies at the age of 50, 51. <laughs> when some people... How old was Scorsese when he won his first Oscar? Oh, God, that's a question. But definitely older than 51, I believe. <laughs> yeah. Oh, man. What a trip. Uh, yeah, so, yeah, so you have like this half an hour, which I think the most powerful thing that comes out of that first half hour mm. is... 
the reaction of the cops to the game to see Larry Fishburne, and but then it is really the, just the revelation of like his friend in the wheelchair. Yeah, yeah, true. They're, they're very casual with that, aren't they? They don't make a. I mean, obviously he's like he's spinning around and like you know doing little stunts and stuff throughout, so it's not like subtle in that way. But they don't make a real like. And he's in a wheelchair now, kind of thing yeah, about it. Like, like, the, like they don't even really lay up the fact that, like, you finish with with Doughboy and Chris going to juvie for mm. for whatever, and then yeah. they come back and it's like they're celebrating Doughboy having got out of prison, yeah. and then it's just the revelation that like they're hanging out with people who are a little bit more tougher, who yeah. who have guns on them, and then Chris just kind of like pulls out and he's got he's in the wheelchair now, and it's just one of those moments of like and. It's that kind of specificity in storytelling that is like you can tell this is inspired Singleton. by real events. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like this is something that probably happened to Singleton or someone that Singleton knows and is able to pull from his real life experiences, yeah. which I think is what makes some of the some of these kind of like throwaway moments much more powerful. Where like it, sure. it does feel in ways like based on real people in his life and. I do think that those little moments also help to kind of make the the finale moments less heightened. Like, because obviously the first ninety minutes of this movie are a kind of slacker movie where they're just hanging out, chilling, and like mm. learning about black politics, as you say. Like, yeah. there there is sex, there are girls, there's drinking, yeah. um, there's there's discussion of gentrification and stuff like that. And then for the final half an hour, it kind of becomes not a different movie, but like one that definitely has more propulsion to it. Yeah, that and like, hazy. you do actually see, like, it does start right at that, the seven years later barbecue, the guys that will eventually kill Ricky, Trey does walk in front of their car and they, they pull a gun on him. Um, and then obviously they bump into each other again later on and, and all that. But So they are like laying the seeds that this isn't just a random shooting or anything, that there is a it's a completely bullshit beef, like, no one's done anything. Although, the other thing would be that Doughboy is in the Crips, and these guys are Bloods, so, you know, natural enmity there. But to go back to Chris for a second, like, it's the, like, mundanity of it. It's just a thing. <laughs> like, he just is in a wheelchair now. He's not a main character. They're not going to go into it. Just, this is a thing that happens. Fuck you, kind of thing. <laughs> I think that makes it powerful. And their, like, very frank discussion about AIDS and, like, you can catch it through oral and stuff like this, I think really... I mean, I, I'm not qualified to sort of talk about when AIDS was frankly discussed and when it wasn't and, you know, the watershed moments of these kinds of things, but it feels instinctively like it's an early instance of being, like, right up front with it and talking about it. Not in a, like, super reactionary, heightened this way. Is, this is... This is probably one of the few movies that is like discussing this that is not well. I mean, obviously there aren't many gay dramas at this point, but no. like because obviously Philadelphia is kind of the first studio movie that that is even willing to t- tackle these kind of issues. Yeah. But obviously there are LGBT movies around the edges of of Hollywood at this time, and they probably or they they are discussing it, and it is well known. Yeah, this is probably is like one of the first mainstream movies that is willing to like even say it. Yeah. in any kind of, like, highlighted way. Yeah, and to not make a joke of it, to not make a, like, you know, like, the the tragic, like, 
gay person gets AIDS and dies story, you know, like that it is a it is a subject matter for straight young men, um, and, and that they're kind of have been somewhat failed by sex education as basically everyone in the history of mankind has been failed by sex education. And to talk about it like that, it's like, oh, this is quite nice. They're not like, I don't know, they're not like making fun of it. And like, even, I forget the name of the character, the, the one who's got the, the dummy, the pacifier in his mouth all the time, that he actually loops back around and he's like, oh, seriously? And like, this is this is nice. Um, you've also got Regina King just out charismaing fucking everybody. Um, yeah, Regina King, an early star of these first three John Singleton movies, where she's in all of them. It's a shame she isn't kind of like around at the end of the career, but yeah, just she's she's in all of these early movies. I think Poetic Justice is probably her biggest role of all of them. In this movie, she's just <laughs> is she sleeping with Doughboy? I don't fucking know. Like, I feel they were like, just like, you were good. Do you want to come back for another scene? <laughs> again, again, I think this is like her debut movie as well. Yeah, and like I think. Fresh Prince Bel Air is where Nia Long really, really breaks out as like everybody's dream girl. But I'm, this is also credited as, as contributing to that. That Regina King is just you know random girl they know kind of thing. And like, does she hate them? Is she fucking doughboy? We don't know. But here she is, and you'll enjoy it when she says things a couple of times. <laughs> I don't think Nia Long is all that good as Brandy, by the by. But, you know, there's serious problems there where, like, you know, the Trey character, like, in theory, he's the good boy, you know? Like, like he's the one with the job, he dresses nice, he's got the good father, he has aspirations. You know, the grimness of, like, he knows why blood changes colours. <laughs> there's a lot to unpack there. But, you know, he's a bright young man, all of this. Then he's a big old prick about sex with her. <laughs> Like, I thought Catholic girls are supposed to be easy. <laughs> That's something I actually quite enjoy about this, this stretch of the movie. Is obviously, as you say, like, this movie is... It is discussing AIDS, but it is discussing it from this kind of, like, this is something that these people have heard of more than anything. Like, and obviously there is, like, drug use in, in black communities does mean that, like, AIDS rates were higher than, than other... than uh, well, uh, Higher than, like, white people who weren't gay just because of how it's spread and whatnot, but the relationship to sex in this movie does feel very teenage boy-y. Mm-hmm. Like, and I don't need it to be this kind of, like, nuanced perspective on sex and sexuality, because it is told from the perspective of these three 18-year-olds, one yeah. of whom has already managed to father a child, <laughs> and another of whom probably is, like, just sleeping with random women and not particularly thinking about feelings and whatnot. Mm-hmm. And so... You have the entire thing from Trey's point of view, who is like, well, I'm a virgin, and I've lied to my father and told him the most, like, cliched story I can possibly tell him about, like, the last time I had sex, where it's like, mum and grandma were at church, and we were banging, and I had to climb out the window and stuff like that. And it's like, that's his entire perspective on sex, is like, sex is something I need to cross off the list, and it's something I need to brag about a little bit. And so, him being standoffish and having this kind of like well I'm entitled to sex reaction to to Brandy I think mm. really does fit with his character and I think it's very telling that the moment that he takes down the facade of like I'm a teenage boy who's entitled to sex yes. and it becomes <laughs> I was just held up at gunpoint by a black person calling me like incredibly damaging words like mm-hmm. I would not have expected like because obviously 
there is use of the N-word between the friends in this movie, but it comes across in such a different way. Yeah. So it's the self-loathing, the, 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 the self-hatred that he's talking, he's using a word that, as if it doesn't also describe him, you know, and he's using it with contempt. Yeah, for sure. And, like, it's fascinating to me that he doesn't make up a story about losing his virginity to his friends, he does it to his father, who, you know, they... There is definitely, like, you know, do as I say kind of thing, but then they are also just kind of, at various points, they're kind of just friends. Like, when he awkwardly answers the phone to his mother thinking it's Brandy, and then he's like, who dis? And then she's like, how dare you answer the phone like that? And then he hands it over to Furious, and Furious immediately goes, who dis? Yeah, that the, the, he makes it up to his father, and it's, like, way more graphic than you would expect but then like he's very open with his friends that like yeah I, I haven't and like you know this is what I have done and you know he does confide in Ricky that he's scared to be a father and, and generally it's the opposite you're making stuff up to your friends to to fit in with them and you are avoiding the topic altogether with your parents and pretending oh no I'm a good Christian boy I will be waiting until I'm married etc I think that's what gives me a lot of leeway to it is knowing that Singleton is coming at it from quite a young age at this point and it is fundamentally being told from the perspective of like 18, 19 year old teenagers who who really don't know any better and it does help to kind of like explain why the emotions are so heightened at points and why some of the decisions that are made are made because as you say like after after that kind of like first party scene and after the kind of the, the scene where he's telling his dad about sex, the movie does kind of lose its focus a little bit. It is setting up pieces that are going to become relevant later on, but it is just kind of, at that point, like half an hour of just, here are some like check-ins with with all these characters' lives. Like, here's Ricky meeting his, his recruiter to come to play football. Here is Doughboy just kind of like hanging out and Doughboy drinking 40s on his porch and it's Trey, like, just doing what Trey does, really. Like, it, it isn't aiming to do anything. And I feel like it is kind of trying to ape the feel of Do the Right Thing in a lot of ways, where obviously that movie is, again, 90 minutes of here's a street, here's a bunch of people, here's a day in their lives. But that movie is more didactic in terms of how it discusses things, where, like, everyone's having philosophical conversations throughout the entire day, and it kind of, like, it builds and it builds and it builds. Whereas this movie, it doesn't have that same like pressure cooker tension boiling the entire time. It's it's this stretch like kind of between the barbecue and like it becoming clear that something is going to happen here kind of thing. That it kind of just does get a little bit like this is a TV show that happens to be ninety minutes long kind of thing. It's like here they all, all are just hanging out and. A lot of scenes that don't really go anywhere. Like, you know, the scout comes over and there is the awkward, like, economic disparity between him and them. And, you know, there's little subtle touches like Ricky and Doughboy's house, like, they, they keep plastic covers on the sofa and that will, uh, that will pay off for them at the end when, when <laughs> her son's body is dumped horribly on her sofa. And Doughboy trying to, like, get his friends to stop dicking about because, like, hey, my brother has an opportunity here. But even even that scene, it kind of, it feels like it doesn't reach a natural conclusion, and then you do get Furious's 
lecture in Compton that's just like, off we go to drive here so I can talk to you about this, and now on to the next scene. I don't know, it, it I mean, just I starts mean, to feel a bit less organic and a bit more like, the, shit's happening. <laughs> the, the scene in Compton is fascinating, though. <laughs> like, yeah. I know we've like, <laughs> circled around it a couple of times, but obviously like it, what starts off as Trey and Ricky go to visit his dad at work, and then it suddenly turns into like, right, I'm driving you to Compton, we're going to talk about gentrification. And obviously it is, like, I have seen people cut this clip out of the movie, put it into like a lecture and go, like, here we go, here's an explanation of of what this is. This is the idea of, like, you buy up land in mm-hmm. cheap neighbourhoods, you build up nicer and nicer houses, you invite more and more white people in, and you basically price out the people who, who are supposed to live there, and you flush them out through whatever means you have, and you don't look after them in the way that you should look after communities. I mean, our, our, our site's founder lives in Harlem. <laughs> like, it's a real problem to this day in every country all across the world. Yeah, especially, like, I feel there was a concerted effort by Reagan-era governments to basically just abandon black people in certain portions of the country, and, you know, conspiracy theories about introducing cocaine to black people, and introducing aids to the black community and, and all of this stuff and you know true or not these are both epidemics that like made that situation infinitely worse and you know his his comment about like we don't have any fucking planes how are we the ones bringing guns and drugs into the country and like to this day you have like akala like giving lectures about this sort of stuff about you know the amount of money that the U- the uk government makes off selling weapons to the middle east versus like whatever the drug game is worth and everything it's like you know we are a drop in the ocean compared to what the government are doing um and it's all but it's all blamed on black people and like doughboy's thing at the end about like whenever you turn on the news it's look at all this violence overseas and again this is you know Reagan era, look how horrible they are over there, kind of stuff. But that there is worse or equal or similar stuff happening a few miles down the road from the nice cushy white people. Um, it is very valid <laughs> that that spotlight isn't turned internally that way, and it's just like an entire demographic, an entire region are just kind of left to rot, kind of things. Like fuck you until we want the land, and then if you could just. Like, you're an inconvenience, you know? <laughs> it's just that it, it does feel a little bit ridiculous. <laughs> I mean, it, it, it's, the, it's the point where, like, this scene, this scene exists, it has a reason to exist, it's, it's a good enough scene in the vacuum, but it's just then the fact that, like, as they're stood there, having the, as they're having this conversation in front of this sign in Compton, everyone who was, like, on porches and, like, outside shops and stuff like that just wanders over, like... Oh look, there's a lesson going on over here. Let's go. Let's go join in, and it becomes this like weird town gathering where like he's having these conversations with with gang members and and older black people, and just kind of yeah. going like, "Look how fucked our nation is." And it's like I do think it does work, but it is just this like weird incongruous moment in the middle of this movie that is like I mean, trying to tell a, a more focused story to it, suddenly branch itself out to a, an entire community. It does kind of it is what is factoring into my feeling that it's kind of like a very long, very special episode because it's like, oh, and now here come the the local gang members and like, hey, this guy's got a point. We'll change from now on kind of thing. Um, it just feels a little bit too perfect in that way that he like gets everybody on side and like seeing his point of view. 
Um, I feel I feel what he's saying is valid and well written and well acted and everything. It's just the scene is just that little bit too contrived. <laughs> yeah, though no, I mean I think that is is definitely the case. I do think it is just something of like when you're making a movie, do you know when you're going to get another chance to do this? And I think there are far worse versions of this, and like you see it quite often, like movies that are coming in there with a point. And whilst I do think this movie is trying to educate, like especially if like he is coming straight out of a film school and like the the edict was like make a movie that teaches someone about something, this is obviously something that matters to him. And especially when you're thinking of this, like this is literally a movie that is thirty years old. Like I think if if we recorded this on the day that we were supposed to record this, we would have been recorded on literally the the 30th anniversary of the movie. Oh, you ruined it. I was ready. I was ready to go. <laughs> yeah, I was furious. Um, and like, I think... Can I just say, like, just apropos of nothing, that he goes by Furious professionally is fucking wild. Because <laughs> his name is Jason. And, like, you hear Furious Styles. And I was like, okay. And then you... They, they go to his place of business. And I can't remember what he is. He's like a financial consultant or something. And his, his fucking name plaque says Furious Styles. And I was like, what the fuck? <laughs> I do think it's wild that this movie, like, 30 years later, it's still relevant. I don't think anything in this movie is, like, other than some, like, soundtrack choices and the fashion. It doesn't feel particularly dated in the things it's actually trying to say about the way that America treats black people, which is, like, one of the more depressing things about it, is that, like, there aren't many if any strides that have actually been made since this movie came out like and I, I think that's that's what makes it still work and still what makes it so depressing is like you watch a lot of these like 90s movies especially if you are someone who is educating themselves on the plight of black people in america and you kind of go like oh we are we are still discussing the same things like when black lives matter happened last year or like the the big surge in protest it's like we are still discussing the same like four or five issues and we just have not moved on it doesn't matter how many times you point them out and it is just kind of depressing that like an ur text as significant as this can come out and it feels like no movement has been made despite the fact this being like as you said earlier on like an historically significant piece of art that is in the national film registry yeah, absolutely. And yeah, like I feel I'm being reductionist and repetitive, but it, it does feel very like, hey, white people, did you know? And I think a lot of white people didn't know. <laughs> well, yeah, but I think that's the thing is like, is is that necessarily a bad thing if white people didn't know? Because obviously, this is made by Columbia Pictures. Um, probably at the time, had a board that was majoritively white, yeah. who were just giving this this first time filmmaker a chance to do this and. It's crazy that they did. It's crazy that it pays off. It's crazy that it gets a Best Director and Best Original Screenplay nomination. It's kind of a travesty. It doesn't get more than that from the performances that are good in this movie, like mm. like Larry Fishburne. Mm. I don't know if I'm going to say that like Cuba Gooding Jr. should have gotten a, ah. a, like a lead actor nomination for this. I don't, um, I don't think he's quite there. There are some moments where he's definitely showing his, his age. Um, I actually think the scene where he breaks down and tells Brandy what happened. I mean, he sure can cry. Like, I'll give him that. But before that, I think it's, like, just that little bit over the top. And it's like, okay, reel it in, like, 10%. <laughs> um, I mean, he goes on to be, like, an incredible actor, obviously. But I mean, I, it, 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 
career is kind of weirdly cut short though, because like obviously he's he he wins the Oscar for Jerry Maguire, he's in As Good as It Gets, and all these other movies, and then it kind of feels like his like one two punch of Pearl Harbor and Rat Race in two thousand and one kind of kill off the idea of Cuba Gooding Jr. as mainstream dramatic actor. Like, yeah, his, true. his career is done. He he moves on to doing like Snow Dogs and Daddy Day Camp, and it's just so depressing until. How dare you! How dare you mention Snow Dogs casually? <laughs> Sorry, yeah, yeah. Until until obviously he turns around and then does People vs OJ. Which I know. Is, it's like where have you been? <laughs> yeah, just where have sitting you been on so the sidelines. Which is also him reuniting with John Singleton, yeah. who who probably directed the best episode of that that season. But yeah, like it, it is interesting that like is it like obviously Lawrence Fishburne probably has the best, like Larry and Angela Bassett have the best. You don't have to keep calling him Larry. It just fucks me up. I like calling credit. him Larry in the. I like calling him Larry in the single to, uh, in the context of this movie. I really I don't have a conscious idea of when he dropped Larry for Lawrence, but I've. I think this is the only thing I've seen him in where it says Larry at the end. <laughs> and maybe it's because his name this... is huge on the screen. <laughs> uh, I think this is like the. This is. This and Apocalypse Now. Oh no, so he's Larry Fishburne in Apocalypse Now, and then he's Larry Fishburne through Deep Cover. He he played around with Lawrence Fishburne the third for a while. Oh, okay. Okay. Uh, and then and then when he when he win, when he's nominated for the Oscar for What's Love Got to Do With It, he, he is back to, to Lawrence Fishburne. Yeah. And then his career oh, is cemented by Biker Boys with a Z. That's a movie that exists, and I've seen it. Um, but, but yeah, but but yeah, like it, it is interesting that like Lawrence Fishburne, Angela Bassett, probably the two. I mean, not including Regina King, who's barely in this movie, but of like the the main actors, like a lot of them do interesting things for a while, but none of them have that kind of like long lasting career that means that like they're still being movie leads at this point in their lives yeah which is sad because like morris chestnut is one of those people who like i feel like he is he's made such a great work for himself in in tv yeah where like he 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 has like rosewood and he's the lead of like the resident for a little while and Mm. i'm telling you he was he was just there on call for a solid 10 to 15 years if you needed him to be a friend or a lead in a rom-com, or, 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 you know, whatever. He was there, and he did his job, and he was good. He should have been in even more stuff than he was, but I think, you know, I think he makes, you know, the scene. I think a lot of it works because of him, because throughout the movie, he is this carefree, like, enthusiastic ray of light kind of thing. Like, he's... I think he's a more positive character than Trey is. Like, Trey is, is riddled with doubts and fears and, and, and all of this and you know Ricky obviously is apprehensive about his test scores and, and all of that stuff but he's kind of just like eh maybe I'll join the army <laughs> yeah I think I think him being this like he was the innocent <laughs> yeah exactly like I don't think like if it happens to Doughboy you don't particularly care no like Doughboy's end and that like kind of like that last Stab with like the the the, the credit line. He was killed so two weeks later. Effective. Yeah, yeah, yeah that, that is so much more effective because of what happens in the aftermath of of Ricky's death. Yeah, but like you don't care if Trey dies, I don't think, or at least it doesn't work in the same way because like, well, the movie ends the second Trey dies. 
Sure, but it, but it is so much like yes, the movie is kind of putting a hat on a hat on a hat in terms of the fact that like, well, look at this. He's a young father with with a prospective fiance and a child and yeah. a football career ahead of him. Who even if that doesn't go wrong, he's going to join the army and he's going to yeah. And I should say like I I kind of disparaged him like being a father at seventeen or whatever age he's supposed to be. They ostensibly have a nice stable little relationship. Like the mother lives in the house with them and like it doesn't seem like he has any aspirations to like you know I mean I know he's like she's not my wife or whatever but they seem to be in a nice little family unit if in a bad area yeah, like it is interesting like obviously earlier on in the movie or like literally just before Ricky dies like Doughboy and Ricky have that fight on the outside because like Ricky's like he doesn't want to go anywhere he's feeling kind of like well I don't know if I'm going to pass this pass this exam I don't know if I'm going to be able to to get the results and he's like Doughboy go get the, the cornflower that we need mm. <laughs> and then Doughboy's just like no you go do it you were asked to do it and they mm. just have this fight and Ricky's mum's reaction is to immediately slap Doughboy in the face mm-hmm. and like protect her son and it's like no he's the one who's got prospects and it, it is interesting that like ostensibly Ricky did start that fight obviously <laughs> Doughboy escalates it but yeah. he's, Ricky's just kind of like I'm I'm the king shit when in the family. <laughs> yeah, I guess in that sense he's not, you know, the pure innocent. But yeah, uh, and like you know, it's it's bubbling for a long time that like you know the the radical difference between Doughboy and Ricky, and that <laughs> that Brenda fucking slaps Doughboy for fighting with Ricky, and then when when they do bring him home murdered, she fucking threatens to kill Doughboy while he's trying to. Yeah comfort her and, and, and comfort and like try to take the the baby so he doesn't have to see this and all that he's just I I know he they've just done what they've done and like he goes on to do what he does but like in that moment he is being a pure good boy and he just gets yeah. berated for it. I, I know you've disparaged Ice Cube but I think he is excellent in that scene. Yeah. When yeah. he is doing that stuff. Like I think I think like he is he is doing exactly like he is like I'm the only one who's got my head on in this. I'm he presumably has experienced this violence both in prison and like probably losing friends and like knows this loss and stuff like that and like you are both acting too emotionally right now you need to like take a step back and breathe and also get this child out of here because we don't want this and i hate to like say this because culture as a whole right now has like completely run this into the ground but like generational trauma of like this baby shouldn't have to see this and like yeah. experience this at such a young age like we should be able to keep our children away from this and hope that they yeah. escape from this cycle of violence or whatever that's happening right now where like because I, I think that's the most tragic thing about this is like the entire impetus for Ricky to have died is because some people walked into them he shouted back and then they were like started swearing up on each other and then some guns were pulled nothing happened that should result in someone taking two shotgun blasts to the back but like these tiny microaggressions kind of like snowball and snowball and snowball until it becomes like well my reputation's on the line if i don't put down the person who like tells me off like there is something so fundamentally out of my headspace to understand the idea of like if someone like nudged into me at the supermarket me turning around and shooting them three times (laughs) yeah a very you thing to do. Um, <laughs> I, just, I just can't imagine... I know, but, like, again, like, 
I don't feel qualified to talk about it, but you hear things about, you know, like, this is the whole world to them, you know? Like, there is nothing out there for Doughboy. This is his kingdom. They, they, it kind of, they kind of have stripped them of modern society, and it is very, like, an old fiefdom where everyone is murdering each other for slights and for territory and... and all of this sort of stuff, and it it couldn't mean less, and yet it's everything, you know. Like, um, and I I think you're right. Like, I think he is really good in, in in the reaction to the death. And I said earlier, like, he's really good at being angry, and he's actually oddly the calmest one in that moment. But it is it is a scene that is charged with anger and frustration and rage and everything. And I think he plays that really well knowing how to react to the violence and everything. I just think he's not very good at talking human words to human people. <laughs> Although, as I said, I think his best attempt at that is in, in the final monologue. I, I, do, think, I do think the, the fade-out has not aged well. <laughs> it's, it's, it's a wild decision to end the movie with, is on that fade-out. But like, I, I do think that the movie kind of takes the simmering rage that Ice Cube has and utilizes it very well in this kind of like, yeah. in, in the hunt for the people that murders Ricky. Yeah. Like, I think there it is utilized very well. Like, obviously, like we've we've spoken about the death in the alleyway, but like everything about kind of like the build up to the scene down to mm. like Furious and Brandy trying to talk Trey out from going along with them. Yeah. And like they don't want him to make this mistake. And obviously, like, he still jumps out the window and goes with Doughboy until he decides to bail on them. Yeah. I do like that he fails to talk him out of it. You know, like, you get, you get the full-on we're going for the Oscar guys speech about why he shouldn't go, and then he just goes anyway. <laughs> but, yeah, he does, but he yeah, does get cold feet, and, and yeah. But I, I think I think that's remarkably well done, where it's like, no one says a word. They just yeah. pull the car over and he gets out. I think that's like it's just one of those things where it's just like all of them realize that like we don't know whether or not like they've committed murder before. You assume not, considering they're all still on the streets and whatnot. Like mm. you imagine if Doughboy got caught for murder, he's not yeah. <laughs> back and celebrating. Yeah, um, but it is very like you shouldn't have to be part of this world kind of thing. Yeah, like you, this is this is at, even for us this is like our step too far. Like and they fucking execute four people. <laughs> like, <laughs> he walks up behind him and shoots him and then like makes him turn over and everything. I don't want to say I like that he dies, but it feels right, <laughs> you know, that, that, that there are consequences to doing this. You, it's not that big a place. People do talk. It's not like they were that careful about being stealthy about it. Like, they were seen all fighting beforehand. Like, it makes sense that he would... That there would be retaliation. Yeah, it's it's a small place. Like they literally, yes, they look for three hours, but it only takes three hours to find them, and they're just eating burgers and having a normal life. Like yeah. even in all the other scenes in the movie, they're driving around with the shotguns, looking like antagonistic. But then the movie takes a second to go, like, no, they they're still people. They still have a life. Like they are having conversations, right down to the fact that like they are using sexist terminology to describe the women in their lives and stuff like that. Like they are literally having a discourse in the same way that we have seen yeah, yeah. Doughboy and Ushaliga and like all the rest of it earlier on the movie. Yeah. There is a uh, a badly made straight to film video sequel out there that tells it from their perspective. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to say they're all the same. That feels weird for and, and bad, but you know, that you're killing 
your own, you're killing each other, you're, I, I don't know how to phrase it in a way that doesn't make me sound racist, but you know, that you're all fucking just young men who <laughs> are struggling. But I think it is helped by the fact that, like, they are 18-year-old men who think this is everything. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. The decisions, the decisions I make right now are the most important decisions I'm going to make in my life, and it's like, no, stop thinking like that. And obviously, like, some of them probably are like ricky's decision to end up having a child probably is like a decision that's going to change his life but like Mm -hmm. for the rest of it it's like everyone is taking being this age far too seriously yeah for sure but i guess i I, but i guess it like probably is like life and death but it isn't life and death for a good reason and and that's what the movie's kind of getting to is like the pointlessness of this violence and what's happening yeah it's like for what so many lives have, have been ended in the in this runtime on screen and, and so many more will like they hit you with the statistics at the start and then, you know, quite pointedly Doughboy becomes another one of them. And then that's why it's more powerful to just put it up on the screen and like give him his last speech and then he's just gone. Cause he's just this was kind of the only way it was ever going to end for him whether he had whether it had happened now or like there's some other incident in a month two months a year whatever he is very pointedly the cautionary tale that they're talking about at the beginning of of like the average age of death and everything yeah so i mean don't be a menace opens with the parody of this kind of like of the statistics and goes one out of every 10 black males will be forced to sit through at least one growing up in the hood movie in their lifetime (laughs) like like yeah. <laughs> like already like even even by nineteen ninety five people are like these these do feel like lectures rather than yes. real movies. Y- your opinion is definitely not like a rare one or even one that is like starting to come up nowadays. I think people yeah. did think of it as lecturing at the time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, it's just, sure. just how much how much are you willing to just get swept up in this little slice? a while but I, I do think it i i keep saying it it's like hey white people kind of thing and like it did it did put more attention on it rather than i mean i'm not saying this wasn't a black movie made for black people but it did achieve it did break out in a way that like it almost not an echo chamber but you know like in some ways it was an echo chamber but like this did have a larger cultural significance but yeah, I mean, it, for sure, the, like every every same... every sitcom is doing this, like the Fresh Prince does an episode where Will has a gun, like, you know, <laughs> all this sort of stuff. Yeah, like in the same way that like The Wire can become insufferable with the people who are like, who co-op the show and make it all about the kind of the badass moments. Like here is, and obviously The Wire is different in that it isn't actually made by black writers, but it is insightful enough yeah. that it feels very specific and obviously features an awful lot of african-american actors in it but there is a level of like let's take the cool moments and lose the humanity and lose the like mm-hmm. the texture to some of these things and obviously i'm not saying that like that's happening here but there is like these things become distorted to to very specific moments in them yeah. that loses the kind of not only the perspective of like when they came out but also just exactly what they're introducing into the the discourse. Yeah, and cannot be overstated. Hell of a debut movie. Um. <laughs> I, I mean, I, I still think this is his best movie. I do think his best movies do have the kind of the awkwardness of a lecture. Like Rosewood, I think <laughs> is is my second favorite, which is very much like 
similar to the opening scene of Watchmen, the, the 2019 watch, uh, HBO series, where like here's a moment of incredible racial violence from American history that did not happen as far enough ago as you would want it to want to think it happened. Like this is in the early 20th century that this entire town of Rosewood was, was massacred. Mm. Um, let's just make a movie about like this awful piece of history and the discussion for reparations in fact i think rosewood is one of the places that actually does have reparations for the the crass amount of damage that has been caused there but there is a level of like singleton has two modes and those two modes are vaguely preachy but interesting which obviously hits its kind of nadir and worst point with with higher learning which is very much about like here's all these ideas and after school special moments that he has to put on the page <laughs> And then the, the flip side of that is the like, well, what if we just make dumb action movies? <laughs> that like, obviously, obviously, like him being a talented director, I do think that like Four Brothers and Too Fast Too Furious are like more interesting on a visual level than like some other crap. But like, mm. I don't think they're great films. I just think that it's got an interesting director who whose career is fascinating to look at, and it's what makes Abduction so terrible as like his final movie because. There is none of the style and none of the, the thematic weight that he likes to bring to his work. Just the latest um, blue-grey, like, sexless action movie. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And it's just and it's just a shame to watch this movie be so vital and so, I don't want to say, like, ahead of the time, but, like, so of a moment in history and is still relevant nowadays and is still a heck of, heck of a debut. Like, yeah. that it's a shame that he never really got to to make a follow-up that felt worthy of this film, but also that he died so young that he never got a chance and was in movie jail for for far too long late in his career and felt like he he probably could have had a second comeback in, in television. Mm. Like, if his episode of OJ was any inkling of like what he could have done in this medium, mm -hmm. then he would have had a fantastic later career, but obviously... Let's bring him in him. for Watchmen. <laughs> <laughs> oh, exactly. That... that probably could have happened like yeah. let's reunite singleton and regina king yeah. for this show but yeah sadly taken far too young and sadly yeah. the second director in a row who we are discussing like posthumously yeah. who yeah like and, and i don't think there's like even even in the the more recent movies, obviously they were more recent and so there has been 30 years since some of the movies we're discussing but it is a shame that like we are getting now to a point where it's like yeah some of these directors are no longer with us but we are discussing this like bottle or lightning a bottle moment from like early on in their career it's three hugely influential movies in a row and and we're heading straight into a fourth i mean before we introduce <laughs> what next week's movie is going to be like are, are there any other stray thoughts that you want to bring up on boys in the hood john singleton played the mailman did he he, he knocked the shit out of that role <laughs> he did he did um shows up, no, he, shows mean... up he delivers the test results and then leaves <laughs> He did. I, I don't think so. Like I think we hit it all up um, over the course of it. Yeah, a lot of a lot of interesting talent converging, and they're all very young. Yeah, I mean, I think that's, that's the other thing. Is like this is this is. I don't want to say like the uh, text for like black actors in Hollywood, but like there are so many black actors getting their starts in this movie. Yes, and it's kind of insane that like. What it takes to find people of, of different ethnicities is to bring in someone of that ethnicity who's like looking for that talent. So from one end of the spectrum to the other end of the spectrum, we've mentioned it already on this episode. <laughs> Our next episode is, of course, 
point break. I'm so our, fucking excited. <laughs> our third trip to Catherine Bigelow. I think the yeah. only director who we are discussing in all three miniseries. Fuck you, sexism. <laughs> I'm, I'm almost tempted to get her into the 80s. <laughs> in the as well. Alright, we'll work on that. Yeah, and I'll be hosting for the first time in a while, so that'll be fun. I... I'm so excited for Point Break. If not for the fact we've already done one and the way we normally do them are better, I kind of would want to just do a live commentary of it because I think it's just (laughs) such a thing to behold (laughs) and just experience while talking the shit. But yeah, very excited for that next week for sure. I mean, we get to do a return to two of our favourite things, Fast and Furious and Hot Fuzz. (laughs) Just just end the episode. (laughs) Have you? Will there be movies? No, no. Podcast over for what you just said. (laughs) Bye, everyone. Bye.